Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Shanan Sharania, describes his work as a life coach in a soft but very confident voice. It's hard to suspect that he's ever seen a grade lower than an A-plus in his whole life or that he's done anything else but succeed. And I have to admit that in my conversation with Shanann, it was quite surprising to discover that he's not only a high school dropout, but he's a former gun-carrying heavyweight gangster who wore a bulletproof vest. In this episode, Shanann shares a story of his journey from a very deeply troubling past, from his earliest years of being bullied when he moved from Kenya to Canada with his family at 11, Shanann skipped school to avoid classmates who picked on him. And by the time he was a teenager, he was stealing cars. At age 14, he was doing cocaine. At age 15, he dropped out of high school because of too many fights. Shanann began selling drugs when he was 17, and before he was old enough to legally buy alcohol, he was carrying a gun and wearing a Kevlar vest. But his crimes became even more serious when in his early 20s, his main source of income were home invasions and importing guns from the United States. In this conversation, Shanann shares his journey from a life of crime to the fork in the road which brought him to where he is today, an entrepreneur, a gifted coach, a passionate and inspiring speaker, and a powerful teacher and advocate for parents and kids who are dealing with bullying. Listen in, much to learn. Shanann Sharania, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited as well. So because the intro does not a great job, really, when you think about all that you've done in your life, all that you've accomplished, uh, I'd like to start with 
some insights from you direct, like maybe a 30 second, 60 second, whatever it is. Give me an elevator pitch. If somebody walks up to you and says, Shannon, what do you do? What's your answer <laughs> to that question? Right. That's always a difficult question to answer because what I do is so invisible, right? It's like uh, I do transformative coaching, which really is about me and you have conversations and you pay me money. <laughs> so how do you communicate that, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's it. Yeah. Okay. So that's um, hmm, that's 30 seconds. We need to dig into <laughs> a little bit about that. Now, right. uh, did you, you call it transformative coaching. Is that what I heard you say? Yes. Now, why don't we just talk about that a little bit? I mean, in the world of Rain and the Real Estate Investment Network, uh, there's all sorts of coaching. There's, you know, there's certainly lots of how-to coaching. I want to be a real estate investor. Really, how-to Rain in in for all intent and purpose is in fact a kind of a group or a massive coaching program for a large amount of people you know, right across the country, but then it filters down from there because some individuals want more, they need more. There's things that get in their way that, you know, goes beyond how to. So we talk about that. There's how to coaches, there's uh, performance, mental performance coaches. There's a term called life coaches, which I'm not a really big fan of that term uh, without a great context for it. So where did you come to transformative coaches and what does that mean? Right. So Transformative coaching, and as you said, you know, it's such a big umbrella. Coaching is such a huge umbrella, and a lot of people can become overnight coaches over the weekend doing a course in their underwear and the computer, you sure. know, yeah, because it's not a regulated industry. Um, but how I came to that term is because I work with people around their inner world. And so I've been doing this for about five years now, professionally, just over five years. And um, the, the work that we do is basically helping people understand themselves more. So it's less about how to live your life or how to do something, because that includes like the behavior level, right? I like to go internal more. I like to go to the beginning more. So I help people understand what quality of thinking they're operating from, uh, what they're aware of, what they're not aware of in their life. And we start to help them understand how perspective is formed, uh, what kind of thinking they're using, how their mind works, how their emotions work. Because I find that in my experience, through learning this myself, um, when people start to get a better understanding of that and better awareness around it, their how-tos that they come up with are far greater than I can provide anything to for them. I think that's the actually that's one of the things about a a great coach is that they understand that they don't have to have the answers, and actually they don't have the answers the person that they're working with actually does have the answers. As a coach, our job is to guide people into a conversation that they discover the answers for themselves. Now, th this is really an interesting conversation. I want to spend a little bit of time on it before I kind of get a little bit of your background and your journey, because you've got a very interesting story to how you got here. Um, right. But back again to the nature of coaching and why is somebody looking for a coach like you, for example, I mean, I could ask that question of, you know, a how to coach is easy. I don't know how to do something. Therefore, I need somebody to tell me how to do that. You know, I'm an athlete. I need somebody that technically can tell me what I need to do exactly, precisely, physically training, all of those things. I'll have a nutritional coach, all of those things. Right. So that's a technical how to coach real estate investing. Tell me what to do, where to go, where to buy, how to t talk to the bank. Okay. How to now. Yeah. Why would I even think I need a coach like this? 
Right. So that's a great question because I fundamentally believe that you don't, nobody actually needs a coach. And if you're in need of a coach, then you might not want to get a coach. You might want to look at, you know, upgrading yourself in different ways. So podcasts, books, um, get into personal development videos and spiritual videos and kind of upgrade your awareness there. And when you get to a place where you want a coach, that's when I would come in. But how, but that goes back. Okay. So uh, this is an interesting question, right? Because I could ask this question of anybody, by the way, uh, right. who is in the coaching, in the world of coaching, like, the, like you're doing uh, aside from how to coach. So what I want to know from a, you know, from your perspective in a, in a, in the world of a, a journey of personal development, of professional development, of a way of being, because, you know, we often, you know, there, there are the cliches that are said, which they're cliches and they're said, because that's really the truth. You know, it's, exactly. it's said it's not the goal, it's who you have to become to achieve the goal. It's never about the goal. Right. Yet, it, it because to achieve that goal, you have to show up differently. Great, great quote. Alan Kahn, good friend of mine, once shared with me, and I loved it. And it so stuck with me and continues to this day, and that was many years ago. Who you were and who you are that got you here, what you're doing to get you here, will not get you to where you want to go. Right. And there has to be a shift and a change. So back to the question. Let's dig in a little bit more. If I, I've done my reading, I've done my podcasts, I, I've read them, I've listened to them, I've, I've done the YouTube, why do I then decide that I want to coach? Right. So it's exactly what you said about that quote. It's like, whatever got you here won't get you there. And so it kind of reminds me of the Einstein quote of whatever problems you are facing, uh, the thinking, the understanding level that created that problem will not be useful looking for the solutions. So you want to upgrade that awareness. You want to upgrade your consciousness. And why you would want a coach not when you don't need a coach is basically that your life is going really good and you want it to go great, right? So bad to good is, is a struggle, but good to great is not that much of a struggle. Another way to say it that I've heard is that, you know, your first million dollars will be easy to make, but the next million dollars is going to be the hardest to make. You know, I, the reason I love this conversation so much is because this many years in business, this many years in, in the rain community of supporting people to achieve outcomes, to achieve goals, uh, having conversations with great, great coaches like Alan, my wife, Stephanie Hamlin, she was just at, uh, she just spoke recently on our stage and we'll be hearing a lot more about her in her context of the champion's journey. She works with Olympic and world-class athletes. So she defines, helps them define what their podium is. To, to your point, when you consider uh, the conversation around good to great, think about great to world-class, to Olympic class, you know, the margin for error, the attitude, the mindset. So I guess that's all to say that when we have the awareness that it is actually us who's in our way of achieving some results, we then we then have to reach out and go, I need a coach. You know, maybe that's maybe it's that simple. Maybe that's the context for it as well. What do you think, Shana? Well, yes and no. I mean, it, it is, you know, I think the context you're talking about is uh, around achievements and more achievements and upgrading your life in that world. Now, see, the coaching that I do, there there is a... There's a piece there about getting grounded, which I didn't bring before. I started bringing this into my work about two to three years ago because I started seeing that that's one of the most important, if not the most important aspect of living your life. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by getting grounded is that people start to um, 
well, all of us, including myself, we start to look at life from the level of awareness that we have. And most of us are distorted in our perspectives, right? Because we're operating from the conditions that we are culturally conditioned by, uh, what we learn from our parents, schools, where we grew up, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so getting grounded is about realizing how those perspectives are formed, how everything inside of you is formed. So we do spend a good two to three months, maybe about two months in a six-month program, getting people grounded and clear on who they are, how they're creating their reality, how they're creating the perspectives. And that provides so much more freedom for them because they start to see that they're not a victim to whatever they're looking at or whatever they're seeing in their mind at that point. After they're grounded and clear, they're, uh, they're able to expand and create so much wider and so much higher. And again, on that level, uh, the conversation is so much different because it's not about what do you want to create. They come up with that. And whatever they come up with is far greater because now they're accessing a deeper mind, a deeper intelligence within them that's beyond their conditioning, right? So when we're creating from our conditioning, it's a projection of our mind. When we're creating from the source of creativity, it's a completely different game. So this is a cool conversation. And, and where I want to go with it is a little bit as well, because I'm, I mean, I'm a huge, huge proponent and believer in coaching in, in the right circumstances with the right individuals and uh, under the right, I don't want to say the right conditions, but when the potential, the individual who's is, is really understanding what coaching is and what it means to be coached, et cetera. So let's let, we don't, won't need to go there, but let's right now. So let's, let's look at this. And, and I want to say to you now, this is, this is a podcast that we talk about everyday millionaires, people achieving, you know, the seemingly ordinary people who achieve extraordinary results. Often we are talking about real estate, but it could be, you know, business. It could be an amazing career. It doesn't matter what that is. People creating a financially certain future, which is not the average, by the way. I mean, it's, it's less than 1% of the population ever can have claim to actually being a millionaire. So that's not to make anybody wrong. It's to say, What's the bar? What are we really conscious of? And, and what's our vision for financial future and financial certainty? But it's not all about money. It's about who you're being as you earn money. It's who you're being as you build a real estate portfolio. It's it's your lifestyle. It's the quality of character. It's the quality of who you are as a as a you know leader in your family or in the community. It's a lot of things that embrace the context of the everyday millionaire, seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary. So that's all a preface to this question for you. We sit here today, many listeners are real estate investors, many are business owners, many are high achievers or want to be high achievers. What the heck has this got to do, this kind of coaching, transformative coaching, if you were to give it a context for somebody who wants to be successful in business or real estate investing, what would you say about that? Yeah, that's a really nice question. I love it. Um, so... I would say two things. Number one is that what you're talking about in my mind looks like performance, right? Raising the performance, making it more effortless, more easier to do the work, less exhausting, less stress, less doubt, less worry. And the second piece is leadership. And when you, to me, leadership is all about self-leadership. It's not, you can't lead anyone else unless you're leading yourself first. And so how it works with my coaching is that when people start to understand their level of thinking, it always comes back to thinking because to me, it's like the beginning point of everything. So if you're thinking a certain way, so let's say, for example, to try and make it real and practical as much as I can. If somebody is a real estate investor, 
and they're going a level up from whatever they're 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 uh, used to in their investments or their or their transactions. They're going to have thinking. They're going to have thinking that bumps up against them. That's about self doubt. That's about worry. That's about stress created environments. They're going to worry about if they're going to make it or not. If they're capable or not. So I help people get grounded in how their thinking works. And when people start to understand, and what I mean by understand is two parts, right? There's an intellectual understanding and there's like understanding. You know, it's kind of like getting a joke when you first hear a joke. Mm -hmm. After you hear the joke, the second time you hear it, you're like, I already know this. Right. That second piece is like seeing something, realization. Mm -hmm. So when people start to see that they're bumping up against their thinking, they start to see the arbitrariness of it. They start to see the illusory nature of thought and how thought comes in and thought fades all the time. So they hang on to that less and they start to make decisions from a more calm and clear mind. Now that to me is the number one single most important variable to anything in life, whether that's relationships, health, business, self-care, leadership, finance, you name it. If you have a calm and clear mind, you're going to make better decisions. Yeah, I think I do a lot of exercises because I got, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely guilty uh, of having what some people would refer to as monkey brain and, and internal chatter, you know, a circular conversation with myself. I actually, when I'm having conversations with others and I'm coaching them around their real estate stuff, you know, I can pick up on that, uh, you know, where people just have this circular conversations with themselves and they don't download the the hard drive. So I use the brain in the context of hard drive, which is you need to clear and clean the hard drive. And that's often can look like, uh, and primarily for me, it either looks like meditation and or journaling. Journaling is a really, really powerful way to just clean the hard drive. People don't understand that the brain is wired in a funny way. You write something down and your brain actually sees no need to remember it. And so it it starts to clean up the hard drive. It gives you a space to have a clear thought show up. If your brain's full, nothing creative's coming in. If it's a circular conversation, there's no room for anything to flow in and get into that. As a matter of fact, you right. some people go out and have more conversation, then their brain gets even busier and even more cluttered. So how do we how do we clear the brain? Is that is that kind of a does that kind of go in the direction that you're talking about? Does just slowing the brain down or slowing your mind down, getting clean, getting clear? Is that in the context of what you're talking about there? Yeah, absolutely. It is. So there is there is the brain and then there's the mind. And the distinction between the two I'll provide, because it's exactly what you're talking about. The result that everyone wants to get to a space where they can make better decisions is a slowed down brain, is a more clear and calm perspective that they're looking through. And you're right, when you have circular thinking going on, it starts to get worn out and stale in there and you start to become uninspired and you know you, you make really dumb decisions or not even, even if it's the best decision, if it's from a distorted mind, so it's not the best you can come up with. So the distinction between the mind and the brain is the brain, like you said, is a hard drive, but the mind is what powers the brain, right? So it's, it's something like, um, a light bulb and the electricity. The electricity powers the light bulb. So we want to let people see that there is a power behind the brain that's powering the brain. Mm -hmm. Now, as simple as I can try and make it, when I start to get into a conversation with somebody about how they can get to a more clear and calm mind, it's more about helping them see that whatever they have in their brain that came from somewhere. It came from either their conditional thinking, it came from their resources that they were 
intuition, for example, is a great resource to tap into. Uh, so we want to point people towards the fact that there is a fact of life where you are going to get thoughts and then those thoughts are going to fade. Like you don't have the same thoughts you did at 7 a.m. I don't have the same thoughts I did 30 minutes ago. Why? Because the nature of thought is that it fades automatically. We don't need to push them out of us. They just fade. Now, when somebody starts to see that in their own life, they will start to hang on to whatever thoughts they, they think they're important less and less and less. And if they start to do that, then automatically they have a calm and clear mind because they hang on to whatever they think is important less and less. So they, 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 they allow the natural process of thought to take its course. You know, this is such an interesting conversation from a, uh, uh, you know, because this really gets deep really quickly. So it's like, right. who is the thinker of the thoughts? And, you know, for, for listeners, and I'm sure my, my guess is that you've read the book, but if you were to read the book and I've said it on, on past shows, cause it's, it's really, man, oh man, I've read that book so many times. It's called Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Yeah. And it will it will rock your world in how we think and and how deep we can go in those thoughts and, and being aware of them. And this is just really, really powerful work. And uh, so I go back to that book recommendation often. Yeah, absolutely. I love that book as well. And I find that it's so simple when we start to look at our own self as the laboratory, right? We don't We don't want to believe, we don't need to believe in, in what people are saying when we can use ourselves as the laboratory. So as an example, you know, I speak with youth in schools, which we'll get into in a minute, I know. Uh, but usually I ask them when I start my presentations, I go, tell me what you're going to think three minutes from now, guys, because they face a lot of stress. They feel, face a lot of peer pressure. Sure. And nobody can tell me. They kind of look at each other and giggle and go, oh, my God, we can't, we can't do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that illustrates to them that you're going to get new thoughts. You always have, but you haven't really pointed your awareness there. And if you do, then you can start to rely on that resource. You can start to understand that you don't have to hang on to those thoughts that don't feel so good. Because when we're, when our attention's not pointed there, our automatic conditioning is, oh my God, we got to worry about this until we come up with a solution. I'm going to worry about it. I'm going to be stressed until I come up with a solution. But when you're stressed and when you're worried, your mind is contracted and you're far from a solution. I'm going to circle back to this conversation, but I want to end this part of the conversation off on something that is people don't realize because you use the word solution and how we think and we're, we're stressed about certain things. The decision or an indecision is actually the decision not to make a decision. It's still a decision. And sometimes people get caught in, I have to make a decision. I have to have a solution. I have to move forward. But if you stop just for a moment, go, I don't have a solution right now. My decision is no decision. It's a really powerful technique just to let go of it, park it and come back to it. You know, really look at it and say, do I need a solution in this moment? Does it really need to be in this moment? And can it be in an hour from now? Can it be in a day from now? Can it be, you know, conditional on these three things occurring? Then you're making a conscious decision to not make a decision, right? And it's just a, a really cool way to, to hold that space. Okay. Let's let's park this conversation for a minute because there's a there's a, I want to hear more about how you got here because I know that you've got a a cool story that kind of led you down this path and who you are today is not who you were many years ago. So let's let's go back and give it a little bit. Let's give our listeners a little bit of history because tell me where were you born? Where'd you go to school? What'd you do early on in your life? You know, did you have a career? What was going on for you? Right. So I was born in Kenya. 
and uh, came to Canada, Vancouver, right away at age 11. My family immigrated, uh, you know, with me and my older brother here. Mm -hmm. And they wanted a better life because Kenya is a third world country. Uh, bad healthcare, bad school system, safety risks, all of it. Mm -hmm. So we came here and I was 11 years old and I faced a deep culture shock that was completely unexpected. First of all, I was going through puberty and voice changing and hair showing up in places. I was like, what's going on with myself? And then I have this deep culture shock. And um, one of the first things I faced was getting bullied, which I'd never experienced. Can before. I interrupt here? Okay, I want to get yeah. the bully. Don't forget the bully. But I want to go back. I, I, I like to get background because in the world of seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary, in the background of... Because people operate on top of stories, okay? The story is, you know, my parents were bad, you know, I got beat, I was an alcoholic, or my parents were awesome, but they, they spoiled me, so I never had to face adversity, and now I don't know how to do that. There's always a story of why I am the way I am, or the, not always, there can be, so I'll put in that correction. Yeah. There often is a story. And, and so for you, you come from Kenya, you're 11 years old, why did your parents immigrate to Canada? What, what, what did they do and what was going on in Kenya that they said, let's go to Canada? Can I, can I get a little bit of that? Because I'm always interested in that. Yeah, sure. So my uh, dad has family here. He's, his brothers and his mom used to live in Calgary. His mom passed away a few years ago. But his brothers and, and my dad himself were, was here in the 70s. So he has seen life in Canada and he's seen how it's a better life here. It's better opportunity here. There's friendlier people. It's more safe. All of it, right? Healthcare is better. Education is better. So because of that, I guess he was influenced with Canada so much that he thought, you know, when I raise my family, I want to move them to a better space. And this looks like a pretty perfect spot. Now, when, when we were in Kenya, we were in Kisumu, Kenya, which is right on the equator, which is about 32 to 36 degrees Celsius every single day of the year. Mm -hmm. So he's looking at Vancouver and the rest of Canada and going Vancouver as the best weather. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go to Vancouver. So I think that's why primarily he picked Vancouver which I'm really grateful for because mm -hmm. I love the city. Mm -hmm. But that's the reason we came here. Okay. And so what does he do? What did your dad do? Your mom was a stay-at-home mom, looking after kids. Was your dad an entrepreneur? Did he? Where did he play his career out? Yeah, he was always an entrepreneur. He had an auto um, spare parts shop in Kenya that he operated. Kenya is a very simple life. You know, you start at 10, you take a two-hour lunch break at one, and you close the shop at five. Sure. And then when he came to Canada, it is like going, it was for him and for us, like going from higher middle class to lower middle class, not even middle class, but lower middle class. And so obviously everything is more expensive here. So he started working and he opened up, um, there was a chain called Lucky Loonies. I'm not sure you remember if or not, but in the nineties, yeah. yeah, they grew it to about 26 stores all over BC and Alberta. So he was part of that was a founding member of that. And so he started doing that when he got here. And my mom had to get a job as well because, you know, two incomes was needed sure. for the household. Yeah. So she went from being a housewife in Kenya to coming here and getting into work. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's basically what they got into. Okay. So you're in school, you're 11, you're going through what you're going through as a landed immigrant, as a child, parents, for whatever reason, you show up in school and your first experience is getting bullied yeah were you physically small was it just about color what what was it about you being bullied what was it yeah well it was it was a few things that i remember one of them was obviously i dressed differently and talked differently right completely different worlds mm. uh the second piece was color the color of my skin i went to an elementary school in 93 there was two brown kids out of 700 mm. 
now you're lucky to find two white kids out of 700. <laughs> Predominantly white. Okay, got it. Yeah. Right. So you're a bit of a, yeah, you were a novelty. Yeah, yeah. I was. Yeah, yeah. I was. And I just didn't know how to respond to it. You know, I, I, was, I wasn't understanding it because in my mind, I was registering it as I like me. And when you're bullying me, this means that you don't like me. Mm -hmm. And so I started to um, translate in my head that there must be something about me that, that is not likable. Mm. right that's that's how it looked to me there's something wrong with me otherwise this wouldn't happen and so that continued for a bit till I was about age 13 and I didn't know how to respond to it and every adult I spoke to whether it was my parents friends parents teachers principal uh, across the board I kept hearing that's just part of life that's just part of school everyone gets bullied you'll get over it it's not that big of a deal and again in my mind I was registering as you're telling me to get dressed and go get bullied because that's what I'm hearing, mm -hmm. right? Like wake up every day, get dressed, go get bullied. So it wasn't so attractive to me. So I started skipping school. Because but I, let's, you know, I, I want to slow down in this one and not to interrupt your story. Yeah, and, no, and that's okay. Because I think, is, I think the bullying conversation is really kind of interesting and important uh, because I happen to know some uh, young parents just recently who aren't sure if they're dealing with bullying with their, uh, I think, uh, grade one and uh, grade three, and I want to say grade six, so elementary school kids. It's just really been showing up over the past, particularly the past couple of months, and that's just what happens, probably prepping me for this call. That's the way the universe works. The The, the question that I, I have for you is that you reached out to parents. Like when I went to school, I was actually bullied. Uh, for a while, you know, and, and so when I brought it to my parents and complained about this kid that was bullying me, you know, my dad, you know, his answer is, well, kick his ass, you know, like grow up, step up, yeah. you know, don't, don't be a right. wimp. Right. So, you know, I'm 10 <laughs> years old and, you know, Jody bullies me and, you know, and, and we go at it in the mud room in elementary school. Like, you know, that's how I handled bullying, which was, yeah. I, I don't know if that worked or not. Um, ultimately he quit bullying me. So maybe it did, but you go home and you say, you're talking to adults. So you're actually reaching out to adults. You're saying these kids are treating me this way and they're going, that's just part of life. Suck it up. Is that kind yeah. of how that landed for you? Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Now I don't know which is better. Like, you know, so my dad, you know, he goes, go, you know, stand up for yourself, you know, and, uh, get into a fight, whatever permission to do that. Parents today, there's the other side of it. They're trying to listen and be sensitive to what their kids are saying. But then there's the overprotective part of it that actually can, I think, maybe even cause more challenges with the kids because they're not facing that adversity in a powerful way on their own. Not that they should have to. It's very complicated, don't you think? Or how was it for you back then? It is. It's, it's much more complicated, of course, because the smartphones are here, right? Yeah. So bullying comes home now. Yeah. Whereas in our days, it didn't come home. It sure. stayed in school. Um, so you, anyway, so let's go back to your story. So you're being bullied. Yeah. You're not getting the support you need as you go forward. You're really defining yourself through that bullying as something's wrong with me. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm starting to get a taste of, I am a minority. I am, you know, not the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and like I said, I just didn't know how to react or respond. So I kind of took it for a while and I built it up inside of me and I trying to keep my composure and it just kept building and building. Mm -hmm. until it, of course, exploded and I started becoming aggressive and started fighting back. How old were you then? I was about 13 when that started to happen, mm -hmm. when I really started to get into fights and stand up for myself. Um, now for me, from what I remember, when I started to get into fights, I started to notice that others were cheering 
Yeah, he's standing up for himself. Mm-hmm. Coach Nan. Mm-hmm. And when I was noticing this in my head, I was registering it as, oh, they like this. Okay, I'll continue to do this. Oh, is that interesting? Yeah. Right? Yeah. There's a group that does like this. Okay, I'll do this. So I got into more fights and I got into hanging out with the groups that did like that. Mm-hmm. And now the bully, the bullied became the bully. So I was bullying people at 13. Oh, gosh. What an interesting journey. Okay. Yeah. This is cool. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm digging this story, this flow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, and, and, and so you're hanging, I was hanging out with kids that are obviously skipping school. They're into well, that's some... a, Yeah. That's the next question. So you're, you know, like yeah. attracts like, you know, that's, that's universal law. So you're now in a school where you're being, you were bullied. You became a bully because you stepped up and sucked it up and became the tough guy. You are taking your stand for your own identity, which is I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a hard ass not to be messed with, but then you're actually attracting kids that are your equal in their thought process about being bullies and being very physical and, and actually being aggressive in and taking over school. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how long did that go on for? What did, did you, did you finish school that way? How did, how long did that journey last for you? Oh, well, for me, it took a really dark turn. So I started to, in reflection, in getting coached in my 30s, I started to discover, you know, oh, this is what I was doing when I was 13 and 14. And what that was, was I was looking for a sense of belonging. Sure. Right? Fundamentally, that's all it was about. I want to belong. And how do I belong? Oh, I'm getting into fights. I seem to belong to this group. Okay, I'll do that more. Were you were you technically in a gang back then? Was that were you recognized as being part of a specific gang, or it hadn't evolved to that yet? It hadn't evolved to that yet. Mm-hmm. It was about fifteen years of age when I really got into that. Mm-hmm. Right, thirteen to fifteen, I was skipping lots of school, getting into smoking weed. Yeah. Um, you're you're smoking weed. You need money. You start selling weed. You get connected to older kids and get into what they're doing. And so by the time I was 15, I got into so many fights and expelled from so many schools, I just decided to drop out. I never went back to school after 15. Mm. And in that that short amount of time, in those two years, every school that I went to when I was getting into fights, right now, thankfully, it's different. But back then, it wasn't about getting interested in what's bothering me. It was more about you know teachers, principals, every time before I got suspended or expelled. They would just try and get me to do things that they think was right. If you don't go to school, you won't be successful. You're going to have to stay in school, you know, trying to scare a kid into a direction, mm-hmm. which to me, it just didn't work. Like the more you tell me not to do something, I kind of want to do it more because I'm a little bit daring at 15, right? And so that didn't work with me. And I just dropped out because in my mind, it was like, no one's trying to really understand me. No one's curious what's going on inside of me. They're just trying to get me into a direction that they think is right. It's not, I'm not aligned with that. I'm out. So what is it? What's happening with your parents then? Are your parents just, they're in their life, they're busy, your dad's trying to trying to keep the family afloat, he's trying to keep a business or get a business going, your mom's trying to work and pay bills. Were, were they just, a, was there a disconnect there as a family? Yeah, there was many aspects to the disconnect there. So first of all, yes, they were both working 12-hour days, so they didn't know exactly what was going on. They would be called and to the school when I was suspended and embarrassment would flood in and so on. And so the first piece is there is no dis- uh, there is a disconnect because there's no conversations happening at home. Mm-hmm. The second piece is the background. Indian families, as I find deeply cultured families, I've talked to Italians, Croatians, Mexican families, they're not very used to having emotional conversations that are open. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all about, oh, things will get better. Don't worry about it. 
And that didn't work because it might have worked in their day to keep them afloat, to keep them in a direction. But in our day, it's a completely different paradigm. Now, as a 13 or 14-year-old, I found that to be really cool because I got out of having conversations and I got away with lots of stuff. Sure. You know, so to me, it was like, yeah, I don't have to do that. I can I can get out of the conversation and go go do what I want. And then the third piece was they didn't want to discipline me so hard because they thought I would just leave the house and end up on Hastings. But that's what's the, and even that's a cultural thing, right? Absolutely. You know, my dad, yeah. you know, go back to my dad and my mom, I, I you know, I'm only speaking for my dad because my dad and I never got along ever. But it was like when I started to go and act out at that point in my life, I was probably 16, 15, 16. I was kind of not quite by the sounds, but I certainly wasn't there. I wasn't being a bully. I wasn't part of a gang, but I was very defiant. And, you know, my, my dad's, well, I'd say, okay, well, to hell with you. I'm moving out. And his response was, don't let the door hit you on the a- in the ass on the way out, right? Like, yeah. you're done. Right. You want to move? Go. <laughs> like, but, but your parents yeah. are actually have a fear of you moving away. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and perhaps my dad did have a fear of it, but he was, you know, just bravado. Maybe, I don't know. In, in my world, I, I actually moved out when I was 17. So, you know, and he was fine with that. You know, he didn't say, right. come back. So he wasn't bluffing. Right. He wasn't bluffing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, okay, so that's a cultural thing. You know, this is yeah. the reason I want to dig into this conversation, because I know that, listen, I, I'm talking to people recently that are talking about bullying. And 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 because of over the years of the conversations I've had with parents and kids, and I'm a dad and now a granddad, but I, I find that, you know, listening mm-hmm. to a story like yours is a way for others to grasp or, or have some relatability to what they may be going through or how to not go through that, you know, and communication is, in fact you know, really paramount in these conversations. So yeah, I, I keep interrupting, but it's, it's because no, I, I, it's totally just a cool. high interest topic for me. So tell me a little bit more. So your parents don't want you to move out. You're being a badass. You're not communicating because you don't have to. Uh, you're 15. You've dropped out of school. What the hell are you doing now? Living on the streets? You ended up on Hastings anyways, or what? <laughs> <laughs> I did not, okay, thankfully. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just got more and more involved with, you know, the kids that were doing bad stuff, like mm. selling drugs and doing drugs. Were you into now, Were you into petty crimes, bigger crimes? Were you stealing cars, jacking cars, breaking into buildings? Were you supporting yeah. a bigger drug habit than, than pot? Or did you get into any kind of, were you into cocaine or any hard drugs or anything like that at the time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So at 13, I started stealing cars, mm. right? And there was a competition of who can steal the fastest car or, or the car the fastest and all sure. that. So that was like a just a, a thing, a competition that you get into. Didn't get into sports, got into this kind of sport, unfortunately. And so by the time I was 15, I had tried cocaine and cocaine was a thing. You do it at, on the weekends, you go to a party, do a couple of lines and so on. And I remember... Right before I dropped out of school at 15, when I made the decision that, uh, again, teachers are telling me, if you don't go to school, you won't be successful. Now, this was very paramount in my, in my awareness, because to me, success equals money, right? You can look at even the world today, 10, 20 years ago, it was still like that. Thankfully, the definition of success is changing a lot. But it was very, it was very common for people to think success equals money and nothing else. So this doesn't equal relationships, health you know, self-care, it doesn't equal any of that, it equals money. Mm-hmm. So when teachers told me, you won't be successful if you don't go to school, in my head, translation was, you won't make money if you don't go to school. 
So as soon as I dropped out of high school at 15, I started getting even deeper into selling drugs. So that meant selling cocaine at 15 years of age. So I was doing and selling cocaine, making money, and that went on till about age 18. You know, party life, there's no real trauma that's happening. I'm kind of just partying and being recognized and people are fearing me and I'm living this life like, yeah, I'm wearing Versace and Armani and all that. And come 18 years of age, my best friend got shot dead because we were deeply involved into selling drugs. Now, when he got shot dead, I went into a deep depression. I just did not see that coming. You know, it hit me sideways and I was just like, oh my God, this is just getting too much. But I, I went in deeper into that world. You would think that people would start waking up at that point and go, whoa, you're deep into this life. You got to wake up and get out of it. But I went into this world of that's it. I don't care. This is the world I'm in. This is all I know. I'm going deeper into it. Now, the subtle shift for me was using cocaine as a party drug. And then there was this invisible line where I started to use it to numb myself. Mm. And I didn't know when that happened, assuming that happened right when my best friend died. But I just didn't, I wasn't aware that that's what was happening. And so I started using it often. And when I say often, it was about seven to 10 years of my life where I was doing cocaine every three days, Mm. you know? And so deeply involved in that world, he passed away. We started getting into retaliation. I started hanging out with kids that were even more uh, into that. Now your best friend passed away from what? Was it a, what what happened for him? He got shot in the head. Hmm. Yeah. And so that was 2001. And but that's just that's a scope. Same. That is actually a scope of of just where you were. I mean, I mean that's right. a, that's a you know when you're starting to have that level of violence. I mean, you've you've now you've now stepped into a world that very very few are even aware of, or they 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 know it's there, but you know to be in it, you know, really is a statement of where you were in your life at that time. Exactly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And, and it was all about the money, right? Like the, the, the gathering of money because I've dropped out and I think I'm not going to be successful. So I will do whatever it takes to make money. Mm-hmm. So cocaine makes money. Okay, let's do that. This other thing makes money. Okay, let's do that. Uh, morals are down, ethics are down, and money is in my view. And primarily, now that I reflect back on it, why was it, why was it so important? Because I was that insecure that I would never make money. Sure. Right? It was all stemming from an insecurity. And so... Um, After he passed away, actually, nine other friends got shot dead. And I got deeply involved in that life even more. And the next thing that was making money in those days, when I was 18 and 19, was selling guns. Importing guns from the U.S., which you could buy there for 400 bucks a piece, and sell them here for 2,000 bucks a piece. Now, this is all happening in Vancouver and area, correct? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. It's in Vancouver. Yeah. And it's very underground. You know, I, I have been raised in a very polite family. So I was always polite and calm and collected. But underneath, I would lead this double life of doing all this crime and gathering money in that way. Mm-hmm. And again, it was it was about money, but it was more than that. It was about the sense of belonging that I just felt that I was craving over and over again. Because I was not connected with myself. So I was always looking for it outside of myself. Well, I guess, you know, the the nature, the human nature is of identity and significance. It's actually one of, it's, it's something that we require. We do need identity. 
and we do need significance in your way, you know, in what you were doing, you were, you had both, you had both identity on two sides, by the way, you're living in the identity of the gang world and, and playing a really uh, dangerous game, which then was also in the background, giving you significance. So there is a, there is a, the, the component of those things that would attract and draw you to that, especially if you don't know or don't have any other options. Nobody, nobody's ever really provided you options. You know, maybe you see it out there and you're making it wrong because you actually see that as a target. You know, that, that that's somebody that you can, uh, that you can target. I don't know that it's a kind of an interesting psychological thing, but anyway, so let's, let's carry on. So you're, you're in that, you're in the gangland, you're doing that, that part of your stuff, you know, and, and looking at a double life that seems to be working for you at the time. Yeah. And, and there's that rush, right? When you're 17, 18, 20, 21, sure. you're more bold than you're ever going to be in your life. Mm-hmm. So there's that daring of where can I get this adrenaline yeah. rush? And again, you can see that in any 17 to 20 year olds, even the best soccer players are 17 to 20 mm-hmm. and the best hockey players, 17 to 20. Mm-hmm. They're just a little more daring than they're ever going to be. And so when, you know, how I describe it is that if you put put a youth in a direction in that age, they're going to flourish. Now, if the direction is wrong, they'll still flourish. If the direction's right, they'll still flourish. They just need direction. Unfortunately, my direction was in that area. And so, like I said, selling guns became a thing and I was making lots of money and spending lots of money and partying and know all the club owners and, you know, don't have to stand in line when I go to the clubs and know the bouncers and all that. Mm-hmm. And there's this misunderstanding I have in my mind that these people really like me, but no, they like the thousand dollars a night I was spending there. <laughs> oh, sure. And you're so, buying your friends and you're not even worried right? about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. Of course. And, and the other misunderstanding was, man, people respect me. No, actually, Shanann, they fear you. Yeah. There's no respect they have for you. <laughs> and so, um, you know, unfortunately, after that, what was really big around my circle was home invading gangsters. That was where the big money was. So mm. I was talking to meeting some people that were older than me in the circles that I hung out with. And they were like, oh, you're selling guns. No, no, that's not where the money is. You home invade a gangster. You follow them. You, you, you go, go to their safe houses. You kick in their door. You put a gun in their mouth. You tie them up and you take about 20000 to 50000 in cash and drugs in one night. Mm. So I was like, oh, okay, let's Gosh, experiment. That's better than, that's better than real estate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right? That's better than selling guns or real estate or getting a job and so on. So unfortunately, I went into that world. And that was my world till about 23 years of age, kicking indoors, home invading gangsters and tying them up. Now, obviously, as everybody knows, home invader, when you home invade a gangster, they don't go, oh my God, what are you doing? Phone the they police. Actually, <laughs> yeah, they don't phone the police. They fight back and they shoot back, yeah, right? Yeah. They, they are fortified their places and they have, you know, hired people to guard their places. So we would actually get into shootouts sometimes. And, and, you know, fortunately I didn't get to a point where I was caught by the police or got shot dead. Unfortunately for a lot of my friends, they went to jail or, or they got shot dead or they overdosed. You know, I've lost lots of friends to those three things. Actually, one of my friends from that era just came out of jail after doing 11 years last summer. And you can see how uncivilized or how um, confused and disoriented he is to be in a civilized society. Let me let me just go back. You know, something that you said earlier was around kids. You know, the you know young young people. Uh, they're they'll flourish in whatever environment that they end up being in. You know, whether we yeah. you know morally or societal kind of environment, the right thing, so to speak, or you know, life of crime. Good, there's a good chance they'll flourish in either of those environments. And do you really think that, go back to your story, 
what would have been the difference in shifting your trajectory to a different world? Do you think that you could have heard it? Do you think that you could have changed your trajectory back then? What was missing? What was missing that could have changed it? The number one thing missing was connected conversations, right? That's the number one thing. Somebody being curious about who I am, what I'm about, what am I thinking? What are my passions? What am I curious about in life? So you were basically on ignore. That's how you, that's, that's how you experienced it or recall it back then. That's how I felt about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt like adults were more interested in telling me what's right and what's wrong instead of asking me what's, what, what I'm seeing, how I'm seeing the world. Do you think you knew that at the time or is that in reflection that you got to that? Because I know I look at my own background, I see what was missing for me in reflection, but I'm not, I, I, I don't think I could have identified that back then. I think, you know, I had probably all of the potential or some level of potential to go exactly the direction you did, but I never did. And, and I didn't <clears throat> for any number of reasons, I guess I, I, that's a different conversation, but so back then, do you think you had an awareness or it? Yeah, I, I'm just curious because you went into a real life of violence and, and crime and all the rest of it. You can look back at it and go, well, there was a breakdown. You know, nobody cared. Nobody talked to me. Nobody had a conversation. I can see knowing that in hindsight. But are you able to connect? Can you still connect back to what you were feeling back then? That would, you know, so how do you, how are you coaching kids? Because I know you speak at schools. You share yeah. your story. It's a powerful story. How are you coaching kids around that? Are, how are you bringing their awareness to what they need and what you suggest they do? Yeah. So to answer the first question, I had no idea. Like it's only in hindsight and reflection that I started to discover that, oh, that was fundamentally what I was looking for, you know, mm -hmm. because I was so busy as a slave to my urges and my cravings. I, I, just, I just craved belonging. Like somebody like me, please. What do I need to do? You know, mm -hmm. so shallow in that sense, because I really think that if somebody realizes what they're doing, they're going to stop doing it. If they really realize what they're doing, if you really realize you're causing harm to somebody, there is some wisdom inside of us that tells us, no, that doesn't feel good. We're going to stop. If you don't see any other way, you're going to continue. And so for me, I just didn't see any other way. So what are you telling parents? So this is just maybe a good point of entry into some part of the conversation because of you know, because of coaching, and I know that you're doing a lot of speaking in terms of supporting parents, you know, what guidance are you giving parents in this regard? Are, you know, like, do you just be unrelentless in having communication for kids? Because what do kids want to do? They want to look at their phone, they're texting, and you don't even know what the hell they're saying. They're hiding out in their rooms, they're hiding out behind their, their, their computers. Gosh, how do you, how do you support parents in their struggles of communication with kids at that age. I mean, it's, let's face it, we all know it's a darn tough age to yeah. have an open and uh, open communication and open conversation with kids that you can even necessarily trust. And you don't want to not trust them. But, you know, I've talked to many parents, as a matter of fact, just recently, who just said, um, I'm finding my daughter texting a boy that, we specifically said no to, and she still has that relationship, at least electronically. So mm -hmm. what's some guidance that based on your experience over these many years and with the work you're doing right now, is there any guidance you could give parents? Oh, absolutely. So I, currently I am working with families as well as youth privately and in extreme cases, I'm working with families whose kids are involved in 
you know, abusing extreme drugs like crystal meth, cocaine, crack. Uh, they're almost losing their kids. I'm working with families whose kids are involved in gangs as well, which Abbotsford in Surrey has a huge problem with right now, as you know. Mm -hmm. And what I encourage them to do is two things. Number one is start to understand your child, that most parents look at youth as these youth are a problem. They're a problem to our community. They're a problem to our society. They're a problem to the system. That's the, the wrong way to look at it because you, if you, as soon as you think they're the problem, you're going to approach it that way and there's no way you're going to breed a connection there. What you have to realize is that youth are facing a problem. They're not the problem. They have a psychological innocence right now that they are facing that you need to help them realize that. The second thing is do something, uh, build a connection with them that's beyond being a parent. You know, they see you as the boss of the house. They don't want to talk to a boss. They want to talk to a human being. And I encourage them, be vulnerable with your kids. You know, share something about your life with them before they were born. That's how you create a connection, right? Be vulnerable, share about your failures, share about how you screwed up. And they're going to start to look at you as a human being. And you're going to have much more success with them as a friend than you will as a parent. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's places that you want to be a parent because you are a parent and you know more about their uh, safety and security and their direction. But you're going to have far more success if you're friends with your ch children because they are looking for connection. They're looking for belonging. They don't know themselves yet. And if you're the person they can go to, then every time they face that, they're going to come to you. They're going to trust you for that. Mm -hmm. So those are the two things that I encourage people to start developing and paying attention to and really just... Um, changing your perspectives on how you're looking at your child. Your child is not the problem. They're facing a problem, no matter how bad they are. I'm talking to a family right now who's got three children and all three are involved in gangs. And I'm talking crashing into cop cars and getting into shootouts with them in Abbotsford. And the dad's like, this fucking guy, I want to kill him. You know, I want to send him to jail. And it's like, no, if you start creating a connection with him, you'll start to realize that he is facing a problem. He doesn't want that. I mean, the truth is no one's born a gangster. And if somebody is a gangster, they are out of, that are out of touch with themselves, right? They don't want that. And, and this is interesting because you brought it up earlier is, is, you know, the question of, and you're talking to parents. So this is, this is my question to you is you brought it up earlier, which is there are cultural differences. Okay. So you're from Kenya. You know, I, I recently read an art article in, um, I think it was the Edmonton Journal, where there's a lot of Somalian individuals that are immigrating and, and and Edmonton, I think it is Edmonton, seems to be the place that they're landing and the creating community. But they come from, a, a, the story is that culturally, they come from a very aggressive kind of society because of the conditions, the economic conditions primarily, but they bring a lot of that culture, that attitude, that way of being into Canada. Now, you're talking to a multicultural kind of uh, audience in your in your conversations on the surface it seems to me it would be a factor and I'm, I'm certainly not painting anybody with one brush so I, I'm, I'm I'm being very you know clear on that but do you see those trends do you see those challenges uh, in your case culturally your parents aren't communicating the way perhaps another you know culturally somebody else is uh, somebody born and raised in Canada and and that's and once again I'm just trying to be careful of not painting everybody with the same brush. I'm trying yeah. to dig into what what you're seeing based on all the speaking that you're doing and, and the, the coaching that you're doing in this regard with parents and kids. 
Yeah, no, I, I think it's a great question. And um, it's an important question because culturally it can get really complicated when you start looking at this culture has these challenges because of their background. A Canadian culture has different challenges because of the background. But see, there, there, there's two factors. There's many factors. There's multi-layered. But there's two factors that I look at that are extremely important to always be aware of. Number one is every human being works the same no matter the culture. Right? So that's that's a similarity. And that's um, a space where we can rest in that gives us a lot of hope because everyone has a mind. Everyone is aware of their thinking. And everyone thinks. That's true of every human being. Mm-hmm. And then the second piece is, okay, where did they grow up and what kind of environmental issues did they face and what kind of economic issues did they face? Because most people are living from that second space, not very aware that, oh, we do have thinking and we are not our thinking. So it is it is important to help people realize that the more you respond to your thinking ignorantly, the more you're going to live from the second space, which is, oh my God, my environment, you know, you're a victim to your environment, therefore you are this. Like, for example, I got bullied, therefore I became a gangster. Versus, I got bullied and I responded to it differently, therefore I became a gangster. Mm. You see, the second piece is giving me control of how I can respond. Because the truth is, a lot of people got bullied. How come not everyone is a gangster? Mm -hmm. And that gives you insight into, okay, everyone responded differently to bullying because they responded differently to what their mind was projecting. So that first piece is where I get people to rest on and get them more aware that, wait a minute, you got to look at how you're thinking first. And if you're responding to your thinking, you're going to become a victim to your thinking. And if you start becoming more aware of your thinking, now you got a little more control and power. The second piece starts to take care of itself when you start to become less of a victim to your circumstance and more in control of how you can respond to your thinking. Now, it is very important for me to help parents see that they are also human beings that are not aware of their thinking. Because they, when they hear me and they will talk to me, they go, oh yeah, my kid could really need you, you know, my kid this, my kid that. And I go, well, hang on, let's slow down and look at how you're looking at mm. it, how you're looking at your life. Because you can't force change on somebody, no matter what age they are, no matter how bad or good they are. But you can definitely be an example to somebody. And people start to lean in when they start to look at why are you so peaceful? Why is your life so great? I want more of that. And that's when a real conversation can start. You know, I love what you said that, you know, of course, we're talking about kids and we're talking about, you know, a, a level of, let's say, being part of a gang and bullying and all that's kind of go to the extreme called violence, let's say. But ultimately, at every level, it really boils down to who we're being, how we're being is a choice. Full stop. Now, how we arrive at that way of being, how we arrive at those choices is actually the training and the awareness that we need to gain to say, who are we being? You know, this was work I did so many years ago. I've shared in the past, uh, an early coach of mine, a guy by the name of Michael Reynolds, who, you know, because I was pretty rough around the edges at a young age. And I, and I, when I lined up with Michael, he actually gave me, and he said, you know, with this particular executive group that I was part of, he called it an executive men's group. And there was 15 men who were all pretty rough around the edges, but we all paid to be part of his coaching program. It was a really at the time, quite a high level coaching program. The point is this, he asked the question, who are you in the context of your life in every area? Who are you familial, vocational, uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, you know, 
uh, all financially, all aspects of your life. Okay. We broke it down into primarily seven areas. And then you're actually making a choice who you're going to be as a husband, who you're going to be as a, as a, as a, a brother, a sister, who you're going to be as a son. Those are conscious choices is how are you deciding right. to choose or how are you choosing to show up and who do you want to be in the context of your life? And, uh, it was really, um, it was an interesting body of work that, you know, spread out into, you know, women being part of that same work and, and, but it was really about that. It was, you, you have to have an awareness that say, this really isn't working for me. You know, like I'm being an asshole or I, or I'm being indecisive or I'm being afraid or I'm being a bully or whatever negative connotation it is for you. And, and, and there's lots of things that show up as negative, but they're choices. They're actual choices. And when you have an awareness of it, you then have the choice to change it. Absolutely. Yes. And that yes. may be where the work that you do in terms of transformational coaching, if we come back full circle to that conversation, part of that is you've got chill and calm and clear because of that. That's really the work that you've done. At, at some point, you had to make a choice that you're not going to be a gangster anymore. At some choice, you had to say, I got to clean up my life. At, at some at some level, you said I could get significance and be a contribution and have identity being a, a cool guy that takes all of my lessons and uses it to support others and not going down this path and or getting out of this path. Is I'm just trying to kind of put it all in a box. That's just how my brain works sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if that's, is that, no. I, I, don't, I don't want to speak for you. No, no, totally. You're, you're definitely in the right direction. It. I mean, it took a few incidents that were extreme for me, right? Like like I said, till age 23, I was deeply involved in that life. And, and there was yeah. one incident that really shook my world, which so was... So what was the fork in the road? Where was... This is yeah. always... There's a fork in the road. You're That's going right. from one extreme to another, but what is the fork in the road that actually changed it up for you? Right. Yeah, the fork in the road, there's been a couple. So the first one was 23 years of age. I get a phone call. I'm in a nightclub, drugged out, drunk. And I get a phone call from my brother that says, our house has just been shot up. What should I do? Oh, a drive-by? Like, yeah. you guys were a drive-by? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody came and, you know, put six bullets in the home, in the family home. And my parents and my brother were home at that time. And so that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> As it should, right? Sure. So at some level, you cared, in spite of the disconnect, in spite of the... The, the gangster you're being, I mean, you, you have still a lot of care for your parents. Like you're not, you're, you're, you haven't disconnected from your parents to the point where you're actually being the guy that says, well, you know, they were there, they deserve it. Like you, you actually went, holy shit, my parents were at the effect of this. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Like initially, you know, I, I was, like I said, I was drunk and I was having a good time and I, it just kind of seemed surreal to me to get the phone call. So I kind of told him, why are you calling me? Call the cops. And I literally hung up on him. Like, that's how ignorant I was. <laughs> and my friend had to shake my shoulders and go, do you realize what just happened? Maybe you want to go home and deal with this shit, right? And so I went home. I was on my way home. And I was close to home. And I kept phoning home. No one's picking up. So finally, my dad answers. And I'm, and I'm close to home. And he goes, don't come here. There's about 16 cop cars outside. They obviously know you. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. So dad still, dad still got your back. See, this is the thing. I'm thinking wow. in my head, what a sweet guy. He's still got my back. 
right? He's still trying to save me. Now I'm thinking that wasn't the case. I think he knew how aggressive I was. I would have came here and probably gotten a shootout with the cops. Oh, yes. Okay, got it. Right? Yeah, got it. Oh, there's a <laughs> so perspective like, oh, for you. He, he, was, he was calm and collective enough to think <laughs> that way, right? you know? Oh, smart. And, yeah. And so I was actually stuck in the bushes. I was seeing cop cars, sirens everywhere. They were searching for the shooters. They were searching for the bullets. They were doing their thing. So I went into the bushes and I was there for four hours. Drugs were wearing off and drinking was wearing off and I was left alone with my thoughts. Mm. And that was the fork in the road. That's when I had a revelation to go, wait a minute. Do I really want to continue and prove that I'm a gangster here or do I want to get the hell out of this life? Mm -hmm. And I chose the latter because I was covered in shame. Because the thoughts were rushing to me, like, my parents brought me here for Kenya, from Kenya and sacrificed so much to give me a better life. Here's what I've given them tonight. Got their house shot up. Mm. Really, Shanann? You know, so I was just covered in this guilt and shame. And I was like, man, I got to get out of this life. So I literally decided the next day that I'm not going to retaliate. And that was the beginning of me getting out of that life. Now, as obviously you know, you can't just step out of that life. It's not a, it's not a game. So it took me actually four years to go in and out of that life and try to make my way into a civilized society and behave like a normal human being, get jobs and so on and so forth. So, you know, you've been years, I'm sure, healing wounds. Probably yeah. that'll work. Yeah. That'll be work that you continue to do for, for some time or, or how do you think you are with it all now? I mean, regretting the past is actually, you know, a waste of time. You know, you can only use the past to actually support you know, what you, you know, take that, those lessons and apply it to a life today. What's, but what's your view of that? Yeah, th there's a couple of things, right? I mean, of course, I had lots of healing to do. I had lots sure. of confusion and embarrassment. And, um, you know, when I tried to get back into a civilized society, I was trying to push all that life behind me like it didn't happen. And so nobody would find out. And in that process, I was pushing my own emotions down. So it was really unhealthy. And I think that now I'm at a stage where I can speak about it freely. It's all over YouTube and internet. It's completely fine with me that it's out there and I'm using it to help others. So that's another part of the healing journey. If you, For me, it looks like you can't change your past. What's the next best thing you can do? You can change somebody else's future. You know, I, I've heard many stories like this and, and, and mine certain, my, my history is not even close to what your, yours was. And, and I was probably, you know, just a normal bad kid, but, you know, I got through it. But really, in my own background and, and what I've seen in talking to individuals such as yourself that have had different varying degrees, who've come this way, who become the unseemingly or the seemingly ordinary, who have achieved extraordinary. And in your achievement of extraordinary, that zero to 23 years kind of thing, or that 13 to 23 years or 25 years, whatever it was for you, was really an apprenticeship. Hmm. in your lessons to actually create an amazing life, to be a contribution, to have an identity, to, to be significant in your identity, with your identity, to support others in a different path. Because you truly are the guy who was in the trenches. You're not a mm -hmm. theorist. So when you're coaching, mm -hmm. when you're speaking with parents, when you're talking to kids, you're relating from... This is what I did. And there's no theory in that. This is the apprenticeship. This is the price I paid for my education 
to stand in front of you today and be with you today to tell you, you need to change and you need to go a different direction. Let me show you how, because I've been there. I've done that. I understand. I have compassion. I have empathy. That's how I see somebody like yourself. And that's how I see, I don't, I don't care if it's a real estate investor that falls off the rails. I look at those people who recover, pick themselves up, dust themselves off and go on to achieve amazing results. That's the price they paid for success. Mm -hmm. You know, my wife, Stephanie, who's been on our stage now a couple of times, talks about the champion's journey. She's been to two Olympics where her athletes had significant incidents, minutes, seconds before they finished their particular program. Took them out of Olympics, four years wiped out, and then they go on to be amazing. And that was the price they paid for their apprenticeship. That's how I look at it. It's just a way for me to contextualize it because, you know, I go through shit too. I've had lots of blowups. I've had lots of, you know, really significant fuck ups. And it's like, okay, move on, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get going. So anyways, that may be a little bit of a rant, but that's just a perspective. No, I actually love that. I love that view because it allows for that to be accepted more. You got the permission more. And yeah, you're right. It is an apprentice. And if you can look at it that way, then you can start to create your life because you've done the apprentice part of it. You have, you know, my wife once asked me many years ago, she goes, are you happy with where you're at in your life? This was many years ago. And I said, yeah, I am very happy. I just think I would have taken a different path to get here. And she right. said, well, then you wouldn't be here. Yeah. So cool. You know, and it was a perspective that was actually quite profound for me back then. Now it seems, okay, well, yeah, of course, got it. You know, yeah. and for you, you would literally not be where you are today doing the work that is so needed. And if you had not done what you've done, your path would have been way different. And you can't even imagine what it would have been because that's all bullshit anyways. It is what it is, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And you're here. So cool. I'm, I'm really, really, um, I'm, I, I love that story, by the way. So tell me something. Mm-hmm. As we sit here today with listeners, what is something, and we start to wind things down, and I'm not in a hurry, but what would be something that you would, what is a message you want to, would want to leave for listeners, whether they're real estate investors, business guys, parents, is there, is there something that you anchor to in, in saying, you know, I've got this opportunity to get a message out there, and I know I'm putting mm-hmm. you on the spot. We haven't talked about this, so I, right. apologize, I apologize in advance. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> but is there, is there a message that you would want to uh, leave them with, Shanann? I don't know a particular message that I would want everyone to generalize with, but Mm -hmm. if there was one, I would encourage people to really understand more and more how they operate. Mm -hmm. Because we are so busy trying to figure out how business operates and how systems operate and how finance operates and how relationships operate. But the, 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 the biggest variable and the biggest common denominator is you. You bring in, like you said, you bring in how you show up every day. So the more people can learn about themselves, the more effortless it'll be to tackle all those aspects and be more conscious of it. And I have seen again and again that when human beings start to really understand who they are and how they operate, they automatically operate from love and inclusion. Those are values that are automatic. They're default. You know, look at babies. They don't fight. 
they're just so self-absorbed. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. Right? They, they get into tantrums, but 10 minutes later, it's forgotten. They're not going to create a war out of it. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's natural to them. They didn't learn that. So we all still have those powers, but we're, we're operating from our conditional mind way too much. So that's the number one thing I would encourage people to do is understand yourself more and your life does become a lot more simpler. Okay, Shanann, we're, uh, we're going to start winding down this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I do Absolutely. like to go through just some fun wind down questions. And um, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast before, but uh, there's just there's some rapid fires, you know, to put sure. you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite book that you're reading right now or that you gift because you think it's powerful? Ooh, okay. So my favorite book I'm reading right now is this one, Realizing Mental Health by Dr. Roger Mills. Incredible book, way before its time when it was written. And the one that I've gifted most is called Crazy Good by Steve Chandler. Crazy Good. I mean, I've heard a lot of books. I haven't heard about that one. I definitely haven't read it. Crazy Good. Okay. Crazy Good. It's a really simple book. Give me a quick context. Give me a quick context. Sure. It's full of distinctions. It's um, some chapters are one or two pages long even. So it's a very short, you know, chapter after chapter. And you can pick it up anywhere, open it and read it. Exactly. One of those books. Love those. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Do you have a favorite swear word? Fuck. Yeah. (laughs) It's a go-to for many. Some, not not everybody, but definitely. It's it's an automatic default. I had to to actually pull back a few times today because I didn't know if it was allowed. Oh, if you only knew how often I pull back on that one on the show. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? I would like to hear God say, thank you. What are you just not very good at? (laughs) Lots of things. I'm not good at technology. I'm not good at anything to do with advanced computer systems. As soon as I learn it, it seems to have changed and it's something new that I have to learn. <laughs> not good at those things. <laughs> Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Uh, desk, definitely. Do you have a favorite tune? I, I'm really digging instrumentals right now mm. with no words. I'm really digging listening to music without the words and appreciating all the instruments in it hmm. so. i stumble i yeah i don't have a favorite tune myself but i i i have gone back to uh, an artist i used to love listening to which was long john baldry i know that's really right. random but he showed up and i'm going god i still like him a lot nice favorite movie do you have one uh i do not i haven't watched movies for a while how about Netflix? Any, any <laughs> streaming series that you're looking for? Any favorites there? Oh, you know what? I, I was just having this conversation with someone the other day. I'm probably the only person on the planet who has never watched anything on Netflix ever. Okay. <laughs> That's funny. That and is, my reflex, you, could be, you could be. And I think Stephanie yeah. and I are the only people on the planet who have never watched the movie The Titanic. So... Ah. That's what we. That's what our claim to. You know what's never... funny is when you ask that question, favorite movie. My my old mind was like Scarface. Say Scarface. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're going, I could be that guy. I was that guy. Get nothing over me. <laughs> it, it was my favorite movie back then. But yeah, and that's so it's, funny. It's still a great movie. Anyways. Yeah, yeah, of course, it's still a great movie. <laughs> what are you grateful for? Oh God, I'm grateful for many, many things. I'm grateful for the work I do, grateful for the relationships I have and how 
I've changed myself to be more conscious of them. You know, I used to ignore my parents and obviously didn't have a relationship with them. Now I'm deeply connected with them. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful that I have made it out of that life and I'm able to, you know, have the privilege to contribute in that world again in a completely different angle. Today, I'm connected and really, really grateful for my family, uh, my mm. wife, my daughter, my grandchildren, and a couple of really, really cool cat friends of mine um, that I've reconnected with, and that's really cool. And I'm incredibly grateful that you were on the show today to share your story. So many lessons in there, so much for people to learn. I hope uh, everybody enjoys the show. And Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Patrick. It was a really cool conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.